when our daughter was a baby. Sometimes she would fuss and cry for no reason we could detect, babies do. You try all the usual things and when they're dry and fed and held, they might still be unable to settle down. At one such moment, walking with my grumpy baby and getting tired of just seeing the inner walls of our San Mateo house, I carried her out into the backyard. I say yard. It was as much cement as grass. The breeze was cut off on one side by the house and on the other by a high fence. And yet, within a few seconds of being outside, she grew quiet and happy. She looked around with curiosity, captivated by nothing in particular, maybe by the whole of it, by being reconnected to the whole of which we are a part. When it comes to soothing a baby, some swear by a ride in the car, others by rocking in a rocking chair. But for us, nothing did the trick better than simply going outside, if we remembered. This is true for myself and many adults I know as well. Just a, just a few minutes walking in the woods or heck, sitting on the deck of our city row house under the cloudy sky and sheltered by a city tree helps restore some kind of balance, if I remember to do it. Henry David Thoreau famously wrote, in wildness is the preservation of the world. The title of the essay from which this comes is deceptively tame. It's called Walking. But in his various drafts and revisions of the piece, he sometimes titled it the wild. And he says from the get-go, I wish to speak a word for nature, for absolute freedom and wildness, as contrasted with a freedom and culture merely civil. To regard a person as an inhabitant or a part and parcel of nature rather than a member of society. He urges us to keep some part of ourselves wild. Thoreau writes, I would not have every person nor every part of a person cultivated any more than I would have every acre of earth cultivated. Part will be tillage, but the greater part will be meadow and forest. Part of us is tillage, plowed land ready to produce and do things and interact with cities and culture and other people. So how are we doing with the part that is meadow and forest? desert and mountain, stream, snowfield? Are we tending, are we attending to the part of us that is butterfly and hummingbird and mountain lion and spider? Not long ago, I had the great privilege of being in a group of folks here at UUCPA as everyone shared something about our spiritual lives. Again and again, people spoke of moments in nature how it was in times in the wild, when they felt something of the wild within them, that they felt spiritually alive and connected. <clears throat> now, I'm sorry to have to say that the nature-centeredness of Unitarian Universalists, which is well-established, is sometimes not regarded with much respect. People will quote with this sort of dismissive air, Oh, my real church is the forest. 
I sometimes suspect that these people are just worried that church attendance will fall off if everybody decides to go for a walk in the woods on Sunday morning. Whatever their motivations, these critics can dismiss our love of nature as cliche or trivial, but as I listened to the sharing around that circle, it was abundantly evident that people's experiences were neither cliche nor trivial. They were profound. They were like the things that Mir describes, a feeling that the sun was in them, not just on them, that the rivers flow through us, not just past us. What people were citing in these experiences of nature were exactly what we just sang, um, the soul's lifted moment. And this is how they had those, those peak transcendent experiences. Another great narrator of our connections with the world of nature, one of our own generation, Terry Tempest Williams asks, I wonder how it is we have come to this place in our society where art and nature are spoken in terms of what is optional, the pastime and concern of the elite. Now, tragically, access to nature is too often limited to those who have the leisure time to get away from home the money to travel and lodge closer to wilderness, the ability to choose among various housing options and pick one that at least has parks nearby, if not miles upon miles of open space. So unfortunately, it often is in practice limited to a fair, fairly elite group to actually get regular access to nature. But the need for nature, like the need for the arts, that is universal. As Williams also writes, to be whole, to be complete. Wildness reminds us what it means to be human, what we are connected to rather than what we are separate from. Thoreau, living in the woods not far from his home village of Concord, Massachusetts, says in another piece of writing, I caught a glimpse of a woodchuck stealing across my path and felt a strange thrill of savage delight and was strongly tempted to seize and devour him raw. Not that I was hungry then, except for that wildness which he represented. As high school students reading Walden under duress, we were captivated by the disgustingness of this image. Would he really have killed a woodchuck with his bare hands and eaten him raw? As if he were just a wild animal himself? That's what we wanted to know. But that wasn't the point. As Thoreau says, he wasn't even hungry. He was feeling a surge of that connection to the wild that makes us not less human, but more human. In wildness is the preservation of the world isn't just a slogan on a poster for national parks or for the protection of endangered species. It is about preserving the natural world, yes, but it's also about preserving ourselves. That part of ourselves without which we are desperately impoverished. In fact, we are starving even when we don't know it. That part of ourselves that is part, part of all, interwoven with everything. Right now, of course, we are stuck at home. Many of us 
inside most of the day, others who have to go out and work, head down between the house and the workplace, just not paying a lot of attention to what else is around us. And at such a time, it is all the more important to get out into the rest of nature if we possibly can. What happens out there is not something my words can capture it. Even, even the words of somebody like John Muir who wrote about nature better than anyone I know <clears throat> can only hint, can only remind us and waft the scent of that experience under our noses. That experience of knowing how connected we are and that we are one with everything else that like us is wild. Words can't capture it. We each have to follow it to its source, the wild world. If you can only get out into your yard, do that and notice a bee buzzing past. If you can't even get out from under your ceiling, sit and feel the air coming in and out of your lungs. That same air envelops our blue-green spinning ball and sustains all life upon it. And now it is entering your body and leaving it again and again, exchanging your being with that of everything else on earth. As I said, that little yard of ours when we lived in San Mateo was as much as cement as grass. It was, it was a garden at best, not a wilderness. But something of the wildness came through, speaking to the wildness within a fretful baby and letting her know she was at home. At home. We usually contrast wilderness and home. Home is a place that's cozy, or it's a place that's known, or it's a place that's closed in, kind of too much so at a time like this. But as Terry Tempest Williams reminds us, in the words that we shared, my chair in our chalice lighting, wildness, wildness is our home. Whatever place we are, here, our place on this earth, that is our home. It's just that we forget. Earth Day comes upon its 50th anniversary on Wednesday, April 22nd. And Earth Day was born out of some beautiful things, such as the view of Earth from the moon in the years, um, in the year before and from space in the years preceding. <clears throat> but most of all, it was born of disaster and despair. The year before it was founded, in 1969, the Cuyahoga River in Ohio had caught fire, drawing the attention of the whole country and the whole world to just what we were doing to our waterways. And a terrible oil spill happened just off our California coast, off of Santa Barbara, destroying the lives of dolphins, seals, otters, fish, many, many seabirds. And in fact, seeing that oil slick from the air was something that inspired Senator Gaylord Nelson to join the movement of countries who were establishing Earth Day. And so in 1970, April 22nd, 
we celebrated our first Earth Day, which is celebrated now, by the way, around the world in almost 200 countries. And Earth Day itself and the annual celebration of the Earth and recommitment of environmentalists to all that we want our relationship with the planet to be has had a real effect. The EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, was uh, founded just a few months later. And due to that and the ongoing activism inspired by Earth Day and the people who organized it, we had such successes as the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, which have made a huge difference to our waterways and to the air that we breathe. In the 50 years since then, we've had numerous victories for the Earth and we have suffered crushing setbacks. I'm sure you don't need to be told that we have numerous politicians right now who, if they can't get rid of the EPA, will convert it into its opposite, the environmental pillaging agency. The passion that led to the first Earth Day, that worry, that concern, those tears for our beautiful Earth and what we were doing to it. That passion is needed more urgently than ever. But if such a movement is to be sustainable, we need more than bad news. We need more than that urgent feeling of we have to do this or else. I think we need two things. <clears throat> First, we need to know our power. We need to know we are powerful. And we don't need to look any further than what has happened in just the last couple of months. There is a huge drop in air pollution, visible from people's windows, visible and markable from um, satellite pictures. There are coyotes on the Golden Gate Bridge. Lions are sunning themselves like the big sleepy cats they are on suddenly empty roads in South Africa. Amazing things are happening to our earth now that so many of the humans have stopped our usual business and our usual ways of doing business. Now, I'm not suggesting that we stay locked up in our houses forever. Obviously, we can't do that. But I don't believe that it means that human life can't go on in a healthy way. What it means is that the way we have been doing it, as we all know, has not been helpful for the earth. It has not been sustainable for the earth or for us. And there are other ways that we can do things. So the question to ask when we emerge from this imposed isolation is, what do we want to sustain as we return? Can all of our cities be greenways in which the coyotes still run? Can we operate our lives so that we might see, see wild things in the, in the parks and see clear sky? and mountains from our windows? Of course we can do this. We know we can because we've just done it. And it doesn't take a complete shutdown. It just takes a proper ordering of our priorities. And for that, we need the second thing. We need to be connected to the source of life, to wildness. Someone at church after last week's service sent an email reminding me of these beautiful words by Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me, 
and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the, the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. The grace of the world is comforting and it's freeing and it's also empowering. It is what powers us to act on behalf of the earth, even more strongly than fear and despair. When Gari Matai, the environmental activist whose Greenbelt movement helped restore forests and empower communities in and beyond her native Kenya, spoke of this. She spoke of the problems that she saw, but also of something more. She said, I don't really know why I care so much. I just have something inside me that tells me that there is a problem and I have got to do something about it. I think that is what I would call the God in me. All of us have a God in us and that God is the spirit that unites all life, everything that is on this planet. How does that spirit manifest in our lives? We may ask. I think Matai gave the answer in the lecture she gave upon accepting the Nobel Peace Prize. I reflect on my childhood experience when I would visit a stream next to our home to fetch water for my mother. I would drink water straight from the stream. Playing among the arrowroot, arrowroot leaves, I tried in vain to pick up the strands of frog eggs, believing they were beads. But every time I put my little fingers under them, they would break. I'm not sure whether she means the eggs or the beads. I hope it's just the strings. Later, I, th I saw thousands of tadpoles black, energetic, and wriggling through the clear water against the background of the brown earth. This is the world I inherited from my parents. Today, over 50 years later, the stream has dried up. Women walk long distances for water, which is not always clean. And children will never know what they have lost. The challenge is to restore the home of the tadpoles and give back to our children a world of beauty and wonder. That beauty and wonder, that profound, simple sense of connection to the earth, the water, living things, however tiny and transitory, are these not what breathe into us the necessity to heal our biosphere? We cry out in grief and fear, but at the root of all that passion is love. Like a tree that's planted by the water, when we send our roots deep into wildness. <coughs> Moment. <coughs>
I'm so glad I can mute my terrible coughing. I wish I could do that in person. Like trees that are planted by the water when we send our roots into wildness. And we feel our roots, feel what they draw up, that wildness vibrating every fiber and cell of the substance of our bodies, as John Muir says. We grow strong and we shall not be moved. So there are so many important things for us to do to take care of our planet, to heal it from the terrible things that we have, have dealt to it. But one of the most important things any of us can do for the earth is go outside. So <clears throat> we're going to do that right now. If you can't get outside, open a window. If you can't do that, contemplate a houseplant. And if you don't have one of those, just breathe. I will wait. I'm going outside myself and I will time us and we will all be back in two minutes. Are you back? Now I know what we just saw probably wasn't very wild. But out there, out in the rest of the earth, there are those signs of wildness, the veins of the leaves, the neighbor cat prowling, the call of birds, the wind just blowing by. And in wildness, in all those things, is the preservation of all we love, all we need, all we are. And so when you're depressed, get into the wild, the wildest spot you can. When you're scared, when you're bored, when you're lonely, when you're just reading a book or chatting with a friend, all the things that I usually just do inside, forgetting that there is a world of wildness right outside and I am fortunate enough to be able to go right out and be a part of it. Get outside. And then we will be sustained in our wildness, in everything we are. We will know that we are at home and we will be able to tend this beautiful home that we have, our planet Earth. So may it be.